and welcome back to The Big Football Show, the Athletics' daily podcast dedicated to Big Ten football. I'm Nicole Auerbach, National College football writer and analyst for the Big Ten Network, and it's a Monday, so I'm joined by Scott Dockerman, our Iowa beat writer, and this is our last regular season-ish, well, I guess we're in between rounds of the postseason, but this is, um, we're, the podcast is going to go to a little bit of a different schedule, just wanted to give everyone a heads up. But this is a Monday podcast, so it's me and Scott. Scott, hello. Hello, Nicole. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And before we get going, we just wanted to thank our legends and listeners, you guys, for spending some time with us and adding us into your podcasting rotation this season. It has been a blast. Um, Even as we get more sporadic heading into the offseason, we just wanted to say thank you. This has been really fun. If you enjoy us, please subscribe, rate, and review us. Five stars, just like Ari Wasserman's favorite prospects, which he'll have plenty to tell you about uh, in the coming days. So, uh, Scott, we are here. We are in the midst of the playoff. We are going to crown a national champion. We've got a bunch of bowl games in. We are at the end of a season. We, we made it. <laughs> we finally did. And uh, what a season. And it's really, you know, controversy free as we expected, right? Yeah, no no drama whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, exactly. The the best two teams in the country playing, uh, both of them had equal resumes and no, no losses. Arguments. Nobody yeah. had any issues with either of their inclusions. Yeah, exactly. So we are, uh, we're all set. It should be a kind of a typical boring week, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. Ingest. We all, <laughs> I am, we're going this path. Now, um, I think it was one of the most entertaining games that I've ever seen um, with Ohio State the other day, especially against Alabama or against Clemson. And uh, it reminds me a little bit of the 2014 um, Alabama Ohio State game where Ohio State was completely overlooked, judged that it shouldn't have been there because of TCU and Baylor, and it just comes out, and it was down by 15 points, and then boom, it went right off after that. And I think in some ways this game reminded me of that, the way Clemson took a 14-7 to lead, scored on his first possession, and then I saw the best 20 minutes football of football played ever by a Big Ten team. Uh, that was five minutes left in the first quarter through halftime I've ever seen by a Big Ten football team in a high caliber game like this uh, there were a lot of um i think flashbacks to 2014 and it, it was very interesting because you even had the emergence of the running back that people weren't talking about mm-hmm. heading into the postseason or even three weeks ago and trey sermon and the run he's on right now is very reminiscent of ezekiel elliott and so i think you know you look at his last three games um he had you know, 10 carries for 112 yards against Michigan State. That one was just a warm-up. 29 carries obviously sets the record, 331 rushing mm-hmm. yards in the Big Ten Championship games, and follows that up with 31 carries. We knew he was going to be worked heavy because Master Teague was unavailable, but 31 carries for 193 yards. Um, he was, you know, just incredibly effective, incredibly used as this workhorse and um you know he is peaking and it's and it's interesting scott because i feel like the way that i thought about this matchup with clemson heading in was okay i think we know clemson because as as we've been joking about you know we did see clemson a lot more we we got more of their season they got more games in we felt like we understood 
who they were, what their ceiling was. We understood who they were when they didn't have key players, which ended up mattering with targeting calls in this game as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with Ohio State, we said, okay, well, Justin Fields, you know, appeared to struggle in their two biggest games. And, you know, they're dealing with COVID and roster issues and, you know, okay, so so we think we, you know, kind of know, but we don't know what their ceiling is. And I think that that's what played out here because we hadn't seen them come together. We hadn't seen Justin Fields' best performance. We hadn't seen, again, this Trey Sermon emergence at the end of the season. All of these things, Chris Olave back, all of these things happening at the same time. And it was remarkable. I mean, obviously, Justin Fields, we, we've got to talk about what he did with that injury to his midsection. I mean, it looked like a rib injury. It looked like that with the crunch. Um, but then to keep playing and then to still throw six touchdown passes and go 22 of 28. I mean, it was just it was remarkable. And it's these things of almost of legend which it, that 2014 team for Ohio State is also a team of legend. You had the, the injuries to the quarterbacks. You had the Zeke you know, at the end of the season that nobody thought they should be in the playoff. All of these things. And it really there really are a lot of parallels to this team and reaching a level that people didn't know they could necessarily reach at the exact right time. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. And I think part of it is you over, it's easy to overlook Ohio State. There was a lot of, you know, I mean, whatever Dabo Swinney wanted to do, it, he did the wrong thing. I mean, by by voting them 11th and trying to do it on some sort of moral high ground, it backfired. Because if anything, it sharpened their focus. And it and as we know, athletes in general love to have chips placed on their shoulder. And Ohio State didn't need it, and it got it. Because, oh, you know, they only played six games. They've struggled in there against Indiana and Northwestern, who were vastly overlooked, although Indiana didn't play like it yesterday or on Saturday. Um, I, I will say this, though. When you see two teams of very comparable talent, usually the team that's the most physical wins. And this was without question where Ohio State dominated Clemson. I mean, they outrushed Clemson 254 to 44. Yards per carry, almost six for, for Ohio State, two for Clemson. Uh, Trey Sermon, as you mentioned, he also had 61 receiving yards, whereas Travis Etienne, you know, he was a first-team All-American, had 32 rushing yards. So Ohio State was able to dominate the line of scrimmage, run the football, which then enabled its athletes to do remarkable things, and that includes Justin Fields, who played like he did his first three games. I mean, his first three games, he had 11 incompletions, 908 yards, 11 touchdowns, and zero interceptions. In this game, he had six incompletions, six touchdowns. And as good as Ohio State has been at quarterback for quite a while now, and uh, that includes guys like Troy Smith, who won the Heisman. Uh, You've got JT Barrett, and you've got, uh, oh, who's the tall guy? Terrell Pryor. (laughs) And you've got all those guys. Justin Fields is better than all of them. It's not really even close. He could do more, and he's physical, and he's big, and he can throw the football, and he threw the ball accurately. But that 20 minute stretch they outgained clemson 304 to 42 they they ran for 135 yards from the 5 minute mark of the first quarter through halftime they hit for seven explosive big plays in the running game 10 plus yards three th- more through the passing game 
Clemson just could not keep up. They could not stop the run, and then it enabled them to hit big passes down the field. It was it was a dominating 20 minutes of football. The rest of the game was pretty even. I mean, the second half was pretty even. The first quarter was pretty even. But that stretch there defined the differences, really, between Clemson and Ohio State, and it showed us what Ohio State's true potential is, which is potentially the national champion. And, and as we've said you know, many times. I mean, this is exactly why Ohio State fought so hard to get a season in. They wanted to be in the same calendar, in the same part of the schedule as Alabama, as Clemson. They wanted this roster to have a chance to play for a national championship because they believed that they were good enough to do that and they're going to get that chance against Alabama and honestly, a matchup that is is going to be great. I, I think there's there's so many storylines. We've seen both teams at we, what we think is their best. Um, it, it's it's elite. There's it's just it's it's elite players everywhere. And I think that was another thing that really jumped out during New Year's Day when you watched Alabama Notre Dame, and then you watched this game. And I think that you know, as Ari Wasserman likes to tell us, you know, it matters. The stars matter, and these recruiting rankings matter. And not that, you know, we ever want to get to a point, I think, where we just totally ignore teams growing throughout the season. You know, clearly Oklahoma got better throughout the season. Like we learn things about teams as they play. But there's a reason that we end up talking about the same pool of teams every year for the playoff. And it's because of the talent on the rosters. And I think that what was pretty apparent in the Alabama-Notre Dame game, even though Notre Dame played hard, held Alabama to, you know, the lower point total than they've had in years, was there was an obvious talent differential. And I think that that was something Ohio State didn't play as many games as everybody else. You know, we, you know, there's, there was that controversy around this, but you knew that they had the dudes. You knew Clemson had dudes. Like you knew that that was going to be a good game. And despite the final score, it didn't really feel like it was the most interesting blowout, if we want to call it a blowout. This is one of the most interesting blowouts that we've had in this sport in a while. But I just felt like the comparison between that game and the earlier game made it very clear that three of those four teams had dudes and one of those teams didn't and was going to have to win in a totally different way. Yeah, and it's more difficult, obviously, for a team like Notre Dame. I think Notre Dame has reached its ceiling versus what the other two can or other three can do and, and then you can sprinkle in a few others across the country I think when USC is at a high level USC is there Texas can be there Oklahoma can be there but there is an upper echelon because of recruits and it's not just because they get the five stars but they have the backup five stars they have the guys that oh well Master Teague is out let's bring in the graduate transfer from Oklahoma who oh my god went out and, and ran for 300 yards on on Northwestern it's well, you can lose Jerry Judy and, and Henry Ruggs to the NFL in the first round, but Devontae Smith's better than both of them. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's, you could just constantly churn those players out. And really where the separation lies in a lot of cases is quarterback play and pass rush because everybody's going to have five-star defensive backs. Everybody's going to have five-star receivers, but you got to have a quarterback who can make plays repeatedly over and over again, the way Justin Fields did, the way Mac Jones has done throughout the year. And then, of course, uh, you've got to have guys who can get after the quarterback, and that's usually where five-stars really come in, into play. So that's where we saw, yeah, there. I thought there was a clear difference between Notre Dame and Clemson, for instance, mm-hmm. in their losses. 
And I think there are teams that can be in that number four category and perform better than Notre Dame did. But I think when you see number one team playing well, it's very, very difficult for insert any of the next 15 teams in the country to step yes. in there and Iowa and Ohio state or an Iowa state or uh, um, Indiana Northwestern when they're playing a team like that they just can't compete at that level right I, I think that is a very important point that Notre Dame fans were trying to get across uh this type of game could have happened to anyone it could have happened mm -hmm. to your team there's just a clear gap um, and so so I'm totally with you I want to get back to you you mentioned Dabo's vote in the coaches poll and it was the first thing he was asked about after the game there were a lot of people I would say reveling in the schadenfreude did I say it right yes you did okay uh of of Dabo losing right because of you know he had comments throughout the year that missed the mark on Black Lives Matter on the pandemic uh, this this coaches poll vote, which not a great idea to do to the team that you're about to play. And after the game was the first thing he was asked, and he said that he didn't regret how he handled it and how he voted and how he explained it. And I, I feel like at that point, you just got to say, listen, I, I go, if I could have done it differently, I wouldn't have done it just because it became a thing. And even if he wants to say, you know, I wasn't going to vote teams that played X amount of games in my top 10. It's just not going to look good. It's not going to work. And I think it, it felt stubborn. But he did compliment Ohio State. He did say they got beat. He did, you know, he, he said everything else right. But I feel like he did not. I mean, A, I wouldn't have put, you know, especially a team I was going to play, but I wouldn't have put a team like Ohio State at number 11. But also, I would have apologized. I would have just handled the whole thing differently. And I, I think – you know, pregame, you know, motivation and locker board, you know, locker room material and stuff like that gets a little overblown. But it was this was so easy to clearly just get the guys mm. a little riled up to start the game or or whenever they needed it, whatever it was. You just you don't need to fuel your opponent with that. In the where it came to, to bite him is that it, it pissed him off early. It, you know, if it would have happened right before kickoff, nobody cares because that energy gets wiped out um, this first time he gets smacked really hard. And that generally happens within the first play or two. What it did was it fueled him for about two weeks and uh, energized him to the point of being really mad, being more in tune with the game plan, being more focused, practicing harder, getting more prepared, looking at things differently. Hey, remember what they said and doing it in practice over and over and over again in film work. Everything is focused then. And so what he did was he, he kind of lit that fire and that fuse. Now the emotional output, like I said, on, on game day, that, that goes once you get popped. But, you know, you know when you have a two-week buildup like that of disrespect and you've already been feeling it all year, you've already been angry, you've wanted to get to that point, and you have a history with this team that, it, that beat you last year in a, in a very – difficult manner, <laughs> you know, they had every reason in the world to be locked in for multiple weeks to, to play this game. So I don't think it was smart at all. I think you now granted, it's great for us. It gave everybody a storyline for a couple of weeks, you know, which is always important for people writing about games like this. But it also, uh, it, it, you know, I, I'm surprised you didn't po-boy it. Oh, I just, they have the athletes. They can really get past this and Blah, blah, blah. That was, to me, very surprising for a veteran coach who is a Hall of Fame coach in Davos Sweeney. Yes. 
Uh, last thing on this game, and we'll get to the Big Ten's bowl season as a whole, is Justin Fields' is injury. So at this point, I don't think anyone has specifically identified even if it's ribs versus something else internally or whatever. He said after the game, when he was asked, you know, what doctors told him, they didn't really tell me anything. I took a shot or two and just ran back out there. But it's pretty much my whole right side is sore. That's messed up and a little my hip. But they didn't really give me a diagnosis at all. A lot of people had a lot of issues with this quote because of this idea of getting shot up and getting sent back out there and not even being told what you have or what you don't have. Um, I think that this is something we've talked along off air about, but this is just kind of, okay, our suspicions are confirmed of how these things go about. It it just, it's crazy to me. And I guess now we got to say we're in, it's 2021 and we're in this point where you're not telling players what you're doing to their bodies and what potential damage has already been done if they're going to continue playing in a game. I mean, it just feels like we are in a different era of player player rights and health and safety and that that needs to be communicated. It does. And it's it, you don't know how much he decided not to say, you know, what was withheld. And this is part the part of football that people don't – you don't want to see so much how the sausage is made. And this happens to – I won't say every player, but a majority of players before kickoff, they get shot up. You know, to deaden the pain in certain areas. And in this case, yes, I agree wholeheartedly that, yes, we should know, you know, he should know if it's a cracked rib, a bruised rib, you know, was it internal damage, which would be really unfortunate. Um, or if they just, they touched it and it's like, yeah, you've got, you've got some pain there, but you're not going to be able to do much different. And he decided, you know what, I'm not going to tell you what's wrong with me because injuries and and telling us about injuries never goes over well. It just doesn't. And, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, it's a foot, it's a leg, it's a knee, you know, he's doing okay. He's 50-50, you know, very, very vague in their, in their own right. But in this case, I don't know how much of that was Justin Fields just saying, you know, I also don't want to tell people that I have a cracked rib because the, the re- reaction would be the same, if not more so. And then it'd be telling Alabama, I, he's got a cracked rib. So I, I think he's he knows, but I'm, I'm only speculating on that point. All we can do is deduct what he said, and then we can judge our reactions based off that. Yeah, and, and again, well, that'll be something to monitor, obviously, this week leading into the championship game. You know, clearly, you know, he played through a lot of pain. Uh, and he had some incredible moments despite it. I mean, some of those deep balls in the second half were you had to remind yourself that you're talking about someone who took such a hit to the to the ribs in the midsection. Uh, let, let's let's switch gears and, and talk about the rest of the big C- Big Ten bowl season as a whole. The league right now, um, I guess we probably count the championship result and the overall tally, but right now it's three and one. You've got the win, the Wake Forest, uh, Wisconsin win over Wake Forest, Northwestern win over Auburn, and then Indiana lost to Ole Miss in excruciating fashion because Indiana will not win a bowl game without losing some more in excruciating fashion. Um, and, and Scott, here, here's what I wonder from your perspective, because you are a purist of the sport. You love bowl season. You love these things mattering. How much stock do you put into like conference records of a bowl season to, to measure something? Um, most years, not a lot this year, a little more. 
And that's because when you have a month off in between bowls and games in a lot of cases, then you can then you can see the rust factor. You can see some of the changes. It takes teams longer to kind of get back into form. In this case, it's been a week to 10 days to two weeks at the most. And so there, it's basically like they had a bye week and then they came back. So I think these teams have all, are all performing at their end-of-year capabilities. So I think you can judge this year differently than you can in most years. So when I look at – now, the strange part is that there's there were barely any – crossovers there were barely any conferences playing out of conference you know right big 10 did not sec did not um there was a couple in the pac 12 you know and then we saw you know and then the big 12 for instance went six and oh at the beginning of the year they got you know they had a lot of losses to the to the sun belt now i'll say this that i i was there for iowa state's first game against louisiana and they could not have looked worse I, I remember, I think I even messaged Jason Starrett, my editor, and said, this was the traditional day of the Cyhawk. I said, Iowa would have beat this team 35 to nothing. It was that bad. And here, the way they finished, they looked legitimately like a top 10 team. The, the way they played, how they defended against Oregon, how they played against Oklahoma, even on a loss, looked good. Yeah. So, so it's, I think in some ways... If you throw out bowl season, then then you should have a mul- if you don't need a mulligan for bowl, you should have a mulligan for the first week of the season. So it's you know in a COVID year, I mean, why does game one matter more than the last game? So it's it's a weird dynamic. Well, it's interesting though because as you mentioned, so the Big Twelve went undefeated in bowl season. Mm-hmm. The ACC went zero for six, despite getting two teams into the playoff. They both mm-hmm. lost in lopsided games. Um, the Big Ten in the middle, SEC had some sub-500 teams get bowl wins. Um, it, it was it was definitely interesting because I think you're going to have a lot of people discounting certain results um, for the opt-outs. And, and I think that you have to talk about them if you're talking about individual games or individual performances, um, like when you talk about Florida. Mm-hmm. But it's still not going to really pull back any of the hype on Oklahoma, right? So it's, it's interesting because I think we overreact to some results. We try to discount others. I'm with you. That was a weird COVID year. I was more engaged and interested in these results because of what you said, that we didn't have crossover games in so many of these leagues, that it was like impossible to truly have relative strength of schedule because you're just beating up on each other. And it was, it was, it was something that, you know, when, when, it happens every year, but it was it was more stark as most things were this year. Where like the SEC, mm-hmm. you'd have a team we thought was good get beat by somebody else. So then, is that second team good or was the first team not as good as we thought? When you don't have the relative strength of schedules, it's really hard to do that. And I, I think that you know things like A and M winning, um, and although I guess people were saying they struggled against North Carolina, I thought it was a good game. I thought North Carolina is a good mm-hmm. team can play like that. Um, but you have A&M's win, you have Oklahoma's win, you have a couple of things, like you mentioned, Iowa State, that sort of crystallize, I think, how we will see the top 10 finish at the end of the season um, and learn about those types of teams. But uh, I, I sort of love, like, the weirdness of the, the league results as a whole. Like, the ACC going 0 for 6, like, that is not reflective of the year that they had. And they did have a little bit of non-conference, not really, um, you know, I, I think – a week ago, you're, you're riding high. You've got two teams in the playoff, and then now you're 0-6 in the postseason. It's, it's, it's so interesting to me when people look at those records and you know take a ton out of them. I don't take a ton out of them, but I do. I, I think there's some very interesting 
results and trend lines in there, especially this year? Without a doubt. And I think it's fair to analyze it all. I think what the ACC experienced was what happens to the Big Ten a lot. And that is when you get extra teams in the major bowls, it affects not only those games, but it affects the ones below them. And that, that happens a lot when team, you know, and, and really the SEC had a similar impact when you have Auburn, who is the fifth best team playing Northwestern, which I think we could say is probably the second best team in the Big Ten. So when you have that matchup, it's uneven. When you have North Carolina getting into a position where it didn't deserve it, it wasn't higher ranked than Indiana or Coastal Carolina or, you know, and, and arguably I would say that there are, you know, the team I cover is better than, than North Carolina or a lot of teams for that matter. But when you have that team jumping uh, ahead of the process because of the arrangement with the ACC, because two teams, Notre Dame being one of them this year, gets in, then that that just skews the whole bowl lineup. And that's why a lot of times we see with the Big Ten that they'll go three and five or two and six or something like that in the bowl season. And it's like they weren't that bad, but they had three teams up at an upper level. And then you're having an eight and 14 playing a 10 and two in the Citrus Bowl on down. So I think so that's part of it. Here, here, here's what I want to get your thoughts on. I think that people saw Indiana lose and there was a backlash to the idea that they could have been in a better bowl mm-hmm. because they, they stuck to that and they did the patch thing, covering up the Big Ten logo, all these different things. But certainly they could have been, you know, Northwestern could have been, they, those two bowl um, assignments could have been swapped but also, you could have had Indiana in the top 10. If the committee respected them better, they could have been a lock for New Year's Six. I don't think that Indiana losing to Ole Miss the way that they did with a backup quarterback who was injured playing through the game has any indication on whether or not Indiana should have been in New Year's Six Bowl. But people, again, you, you extrapolate different things based on what you want to take out of these results and what you want to build either a, an off-season narrative or to cap off how you felt about these teams in the, in the throughout 2020. But I just I find that the most ridiculous of all the things that people are saying. I'm saying if you're going to say, hey, Florida had opt-outs, whatever, then you've got to talk about Indiana not having Michael Penix Jr. and playing a quarterback who was injured throughout the game. I mean, it was – some of these narratives are, are frustrating. I don't think that Coastal Carolina losing – the way that they did means that they couldn't have, you know, carried themselves well in a New Year's Six Bowl. If we're going to talk about motivation for certain teams that guys have checked out or, you know, opted out, then you need to talk about motivation of the teams that got snubbed because they're not necessarily going to try to make a statement or try to prove something, especially if your starting quarterback's not there. But it's just... Ugh, it just bothers me when people are so selective on excuses or reasoning for certain results, but not others. I, I just thought it was the, the slander for Indiana was just ridiculous. Yeah. And we hear it a lot from the SEC fans where if they, they've never lost a game that mattered. Right. <laughs> that they were motivated to play. Right. I mean, what, what there was Bama losing to Utah tw- 10 or 11, 12 years ago, or Oklahoma in the Sugar Bowl, or, you know, Auburn the other day, they had a lot on opt-outs. I'm like, I was like practically screaming, I hate to say it, but watching the Citrus Bowl at Rod Gilmore in particular, but I was like, what are you guys not listening to here? What do you guys not know that that Northwestern lost its number one and number three running backs to the transfer portal. It's number two wide receiver. It's top pass rusher. 
Uh, Greg Newsom, who is maybe the best cornerback in the country, is hurt and out, and nothing has been discussed about this. But but every time Auburn goes three and out, well, you know they've got a lot of opt outs here, you know, and same. And then it was talking about Georgia against Cincinnati. It was the same thing, and I'm going, you guys are feeding this narrative beast here, and. Either you're in or you're out. I hate excuses. You know, if you're in the bowl game, you have injuries. Everybody has injuries. People have opt-outs. Opt-outs are will for now and forever be a part of bowl season. Maybe not the championships, but that's a part of it. And you can deal with it. But, you know, Indiana had legitimate reasons, you know, with not saying Penix, but Tuttle. Tuttle could barely throw the football and they have, they have great wide receivers. I mean, and so I, I thought that this was, uh, it was a little unfair. I don't think you should have sweeping judgments on bowl games. As you said, I think you should judge them fairly, but I don't think that it, they, you know, just like one individual game doesn't make a season. It doesn't make a, uh, you know, a mandate on what you think on, you know, one team's, you know, the big 12 was not the best league in the country this year. It's champion had two losses. That said, it was pretty balanced from top to bottom. The Big Ten had so many teams opting out. I, I'll tell you this. If Penn State was playing Ole Miss, Penn State would have won significantly because Penn State was very good at the end of the year. They finally, they're athletes. They won four straight games or three straight games or four. They won four. Yeah, four. They they looked good. They looked back to what I thought they would be in week one where they lost by an inch or a quarter of an inch to Indiana in the beginning. And... You know, I, I dare say that I kind of think Iowa might have beaten Missouri by 40 points in the Music City Bowl, too. Uh, but that game didn't happen. So, you know, if you want to talk about Indiana screwing the Big Ten twice, one is actually playing in the game and putting the patches on, and two, not taking the Music City Bowl so it could have sat out. But <laughs> here we are. It's it, it's just really funny how how these, again, it's, it's, it's you choose your own excuse or reason right it, for, for for different results um and you know it's very funny I, I think the line about the sec never losing a postseason game that it was motivated to play fully healthy that no one opted out very true and i think sec fans of teams in that league will tell you the same thing mm-hmm. this is just part of the deal i do think one thing this postseason has shown us because as you just mentioned with penn state getting it together at the end of the season Oklahoma got really good at the end of the season. Like there were teams that got better throughout the year. And to me, that only makes the case for expansion more so because you would get teams like that, that maybe had early season losses that would have disqualified them in the current system. You'd possibly get them in the chance in those five, six, seven, eight spots. Um, so we can talk playoff expansion as much as we want in the off season, mm-hmm. but let's, let's stick with the news of the day. As we're recording this on Sunday around noon Eastern. The latest with Jim Harbaugh, Michigan, is that he has been offered an extension. He has not signed it. As of our recording, based on the athletics reporting, Adam Schefter reported Sunday that Pat Fitzgerald is open to taking NFL head coaching interviews, but Ryan Day is not. So that's where we are right now in terms of coaching changes. I'm curious, Scott, your reaction to to the Michigan Harbaugh extension news. Oh, I am fascinated as everybody else is. I mean, I think it's been a little bit, I mean, if you could step back and put down any kind of, whether it's fan hat or anti-fan hat, 
and say, Jim Harbaugh has done a nice job at Michigan as a whole. This year was not one of them. <laughs> this year, if he gets a mulligan, great for him. But um, I think it does in some ways remove that part of the discussion for at least a couple of years, unless he willingly wants to leave on his own terms. So that's not the worst thing in the world for Jim Harbaugh or Michigan, because otherwise they enter this constant swirl. And then you've got to make sure you've got to pay, you know what, he's got one more year, I think, on his contract at this point. And it's this expensive year. So maybe it's they're doing the right thing by just doubling down, believing that if he makes some changes, that they can be competitive. And then uh, maybe they'll return to 2016 form against Ohio State at some point soon. Uh, the timing is right for Pat Fitzgerald. I mean, if he wants to take that jump, now is the time. I know he wants to go to his beloved Bears, and I think there's a, you know, at the time of this recording, I would say that today's game has a, you know, could be a referendum <laughs> on the whole era in Chicago. Uh, so if he if that changes, he maybe he would be first in line, and he should be there. But when you look at Mike Hankwitz, who was involved in his 400th win and going out and going out strong, I think you look at that and you say, um, this is, you know, it's a big deal that, you know, he's got, he's losing him. Jim Phillips, one of the best athletic directors in Big Ten history, uh, going to the ACC. And then you look at seven players already in the transfer portal, some significant players. And, uh, you know, I, I think right now it's, it's wise of him because what's the, the ceiling for Northwestern? Can they win, keep winning? Can they win at that level? Um, yeah, I think they can. I don't know if they can do it consistently, though. But if you want to, if you want to take that next step and go to the NFL, now's the time to do it. And and I think he should be open to those interviews. And Ryan Day, the the timing is wrong for him right now because he's getting his team ready. He doesn't need that distraction now. In nine days, maybe he'll go. All right, I'm willing to listen now. But now is not the time to listen because you do not need that distraction when you're going to, to play a, a national title game. I, I think I agree with you on, on all three fronts. I think with Michigan, you've either, as we said, you either got to cut ties or it's got to be an extension because there, there's no other way to do it. There's no way to recruit if you don't have the tails on these contracts because you can't tell people that you're going to be there the entire time that that player is on campus. You can't go look at parents and say, I'm going to take care of your kid if your contract's up next year. Mm -hmm. That's always a problem. So I think that, you know, that makes sense in the sense that you had two options. And, and if you're going to go this one, you're going to have to explain, you know, what the measures of success are that you're trying to hit. I think with, with Fitz, I think you nailed it about his boss, and his longtime defensive coordinator, last year he had to get rid of his longtime offensive mm -hmm. coordinator, which was a very difficult, very difficult decision to do. And you're right. What is the ceiling? The ceiling is reaching two Big Ten championship games in three years. That's the ceiling. And I, I think that nobody would, you know, look any differently on Pat Fitzgerald's tenure no. and what he accomplished at Northwestern if he goes to the NFL. The idea of Northwestern's coach being so successful to go to the NFL mm -hmm. is something to be proud of. So I'm with you. I think that it makes all the sense in the world to, to interview. I was thinking back about one of his interviews um, that he gave the night of uh, the selection day, I believe it was, and he got asked about this and if he would turn down, um, you know, interviews or if he would for sure say he would be back at Northwestern next year. And he didn't say that. Right. So I, I think that that basically confirms this report from, from Schefter um, as, as well. And, and to me, one thing with Ryan Day is, 
you can build a college, not a dynasty, but you can build a great college program and sustain it. You, you control so much of the program recruiting. You have so much just more control over the players, right? This is always the argument for staying in college versus going pro for, co- for coaches. Yes, you get rid of recruiting, but you also lose control. The players are the stars. They make more money than the coaches and they have more power. They have agents, they're adults. Um, and so that's what's interesting to me whenever you talk about someone like Ryan Day or even Lincoln Riley, who I could see ending up in the NFL for sure, but they've got a really good thing going where they are. And I think that that's, that's something that you've got to take into consideration when, when you're thinking about these jumps and these types of uh, reports being out there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look at, uh, you know, Kirk Ferentz every year from about 2002 through 2000. 11 practically every single year he was mentioned prominently and he was interviewed several times and he he always came back to that same premise that he always said that it was more difficult to um to coach young players with money who have never had it before than it was to coach uh you know to recruit players at college matt campbell's going to experience those same thoughts any day now uh urban meyer um you know the potential to go to jacksonville which is been widely reported. Um, that's a fascinating discussion as to whether or not he can even handle it mentally. You know, I mean, he's, he seems to struggle, um, you know, in college, you know, in, in the NFL, you're going to lose half your games, especially that first year. So that's going to be uh, that's going to be a fascinating debate for all of those. But yeah, I think Ryan Day is an NFL caliber coach. He could be up there. Lincoln Riley, as you said, same thing. I think Matt Campbell could be. Uh, but I also think when you got something going and you've got culture and you can pick and choose who you want on your team rather than being told here is who you have and you got to deal with it. It's a different dynamic altogether. And it gets old. I mean, <laughs> going and and once we get they're able to go on the chicken dinner circuit and shake hands with all the boosters and and in my lovely state, going to all the small towns and have the old people, oh, I remember when Hayden was there and all that stuff, you know, that kind of stuff, <laughs> you know, it's tough. So uh, I, I'm sure when those days start to return, then, then they'll go, well, you know, it wouldn't be so bad to be in the pros and I have to worry about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, before we get going, we are going to wrap because this is our first show of the new year. We're going to wrap with some New Year's resolutions for the Big Ten. I don't know how many you want to do total, Scott, but uh, I think that they're all going to be focused on reconciliation mm. and, and bringing people together. Okay. I think when Indiana did what they did with the patches, sort of reminded everyone that there's still quite a lot of friction in this league right now. So my first New Year's resolution is to be nicer to everyone and to... You know, reach out, reach out an olive branch across there, someone you're frustrated with. And, you know, if that leads to group therapy, that leads to group therapy. But my first resolution for the Big Ten is to be nice. Be nice. And and, and every circumstance, recruiting too? No. <laughs> no, just back in like, you know, when you're talking about other league members and suing your conference and things like that. Okay. Um, you know, leaving timeouts and taking pigs and that sort of thing or <laughs> Yeah, I don't see I don't see Iowa and Minnesota making nice very often, but um I, I think it would be it's time for everybody associated with Nebraska and the Big Ten to do the same thing. Put everything on the table. Let's be nice. Acknowledge Nebraska was right in certain areas. And then Nebraska to say, you know what, we should have done things a little differently. 
and they could link arms, sing kubaya, and move forward. And as they revise the schedule this year, allow Nebraska to have a voice in how and who it plays. Another resolution I have, this one's not tied to what just happened, but let's get rid of divisions. Mm. Let's just have the two best teams play in the conference championship game. Kevin Pauga is a scheduling whiz. Just have him schedule everything up so that you can always play in your four years you're on a campus. You can play a game against every team in the league and travel to all these different stadiums, but play the two best teams in the championship. So my resolution is to abandon divisions. I love that, and I have that in my Monday story about the Big Ten scheduling woes. And that is what everybody should do is get three designated rivals. Now, that's a little difficult for a few teams, but everybody pick three teams. You play them every year, and then you rotate the other ten two years on, two years off. And the best, the only good part of 2020 with the Big Ten and its schedule was the Jamboree Week. Incorporate that every year. So if you have eight games and it's three, you know, in Iowa's case, you play Minnesota, Wisconsin, Nebraska every year, rotate everybody else two years on, two years off, and and then play uh, the last week of the year, try to do the, the whole crossover challenge. Now, the, the one little hang-up that I think it's the Big Ten's going to have to help with is some teams like Maryland and Rutgers, who are you going to pick other than each other in Penn State? So that might be the olive branch of Michigan and Ohio State. We want you to be uh, able to go to the East. And so Ohio State, you get Maryland every year. Michigan, you get Rutgers every year, along with, in Ohio State's case, Penn State and Michigan, and then Michigan's case, Michigan State and Ohio State. So that would be my goal. I love it. I think that's one that should, that should go through. I think that's probably pretty good unless we go down the list of team by team, uh, which all of them you know, should have that. I like your Indiana one. Indiana and Iowa came in the Big Ten together December 1st, 1899. They have a little bit of a feud because Gary Barton didn't push him hard enough for the New Year's Six, actually allowed his rival to get in over, him, over Indiana. Uh, Indiana... You're a proud Big Ten member. You made your point. Everybody shake hands and let's be happy and sing Kumbaya. Here, here's my last resolution. It goes with all of the other ones about being nicer to each other and reaching out to olive branches and sitting at tables together. Meditation. <laughs> Get a meditation app. Actually, the Big Ten, I think, has the calm meditation app for yes. everybody. Every time there's a major decision... Everyone needs to met, sit down, meditate for five minutes before tweeting, before calling people, before arguing, before ripping patches off, all of these things. Everyone just needs to take a breath and then make their decisions. So basically, we all just kind of need a reset. I think that's what the Big Ten New Year's resolutions mean. It's like the equivalent of drinking more water and exercising more. I love it. I think everybody, sh they should do that and... Uh who would be the best person in charge to walk in and everybody relax? I, I would not recommend Fran McCaffrey on the basketball side, but I don't know anyone who is currently employed by any of the big 10 members should be the person that goes in and tries to lead uh, group therapy or meditation of anything. We will need, we need some sort of like Yogi who's like insanely popular on Instagram and just posts all sorts of poses like in Palm desert. That's what we need. Yeah. Certainly not PJ Fleck. 
No, the opposite. The opposite <laughs> of PJ Fleck. Well, that'll that'll do it for us um, on the big football show. And this is what you need to know for this week. The best way to get your best content heading into the championship game is to subscribe to and listen to 4 to 6 with A and B. Now, you know Ari, you know Bill from this feed. Um, together, they are even more crazy and insane and entertaining together. But they will do more setting up the national championship game uh, throughout the week and on their own Twitter feeds and in content on our website at The Athletic. So be sure to check out all of that. That would be my best tip because this podcast is going to start its off-season schedule. So that's what I'll say. Go to 4 to 6 from A and B. Thank you for listening to The Big Football Show. For Scott Dockerman, I'm Nicole Auerbach. Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you when we see you.